Good morning, Grace Church. My name is Darcy Hansen, and I am joining you today uh, from Portland, Oregon. My family and I have lived here for about 10 years, and and we um, love it. The Pacific Northwest is it's beautiful, but 10 years prior to that, we lived in Arkansas, and so uh, Fayetteville holds a very dear place in our hearts for us, so to be able to connect with you here, even virtually, is it's a treat for me. Um, we live in some unprecedented times, and our social media feeds are filled with noise, and my hope is that I wouldn't just be that. Um, I actually don't want to be that, and so I'm hoping that in some way today we could just do a little evaluation and then step into an invitation. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, ever-present Jesus, indwelling spirit, we are grateful. We're grateful for this day, that your mercies are new each day. I'm grateful for the birds that are singing outside and the garbage trucks that just came by and just a place to rest our heads from the weary of this world. Lord, we are thankful for um, your presence, even amongst turbulent times. And that while everything around us seems to be changing, Lord, we know that you are unchanging. And so help us, Lord, to see you anew today. Help us to hear you anew and help us to receive your love in new ways into our being today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, John shared um, out of Mark 12, verses 1 through 17. And in that, there's the parable of the tenants. And John noted how uh, that parable was really meant to disrupt the audience. It was meant to highlight their broken paradigms of thought and to radically challenge their systems of allegiance. And John had shared how one of his greatest fears in these days that we're facing as a church was that we would be um, returned to normal when everything is said and done, when commerce and communication and our commuting rhythms all return, that our churches would actually return to normal. And so I've really been thinking about that because I was like, well, what is normal? And what does that mean? Like, how did we get there? And um, how do we not return back to that? So this week, the passage that is um, to be covered is Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And so if you want to get your Bible out and read with me, then I would love for you to do that. Uh, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart 
with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So in this passage, we are seeing a glimpse of what Jesus considered to be the focus of his ministry, which was the revelation and actualization of the kingdom of God. And this is done primarily through wholehearted worship of God. But just as importantly, Jesus adds that there's also the love of neighbor as yourself. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, Mark for Everyone, notes that when such worship is fulfilled by God's people, even the temple and its rituals become obsolete. Now, for the religious leaders listening to Jesus, their bent was to cling to their chosenness as God's people. The temple and all the rituals it required, combined with their positions of power and their platforms of influence, these, this was evidence of their election, of their chosenness. So when Jesus comes along, a crisis of identity occurs in them. All the things they believed to be true were challenged, and their response was to scramble and hoard their resources, which revealed a lack of love of God and a lack of love for others. And nowhere was this more pronounced than in the crucifixion of Jesus. But how are we any different? You know, what is our response when confronted with a crisis of identity? What do we do when our understanding of how things ought to be collapse? I would argue the way we respond to crisis is dictated long before any crisis arises. It's dictated in how we live our lives every single day. A couple of years ago, um, I, well, maybe I should go back a little further. Five, six years ago, I started seminary. And it came at a time in life when my family was um, struggling. We had a teenager who was not doing well. Uh, she had reached a place where um, speaking Bible verses over her wasn't working anymore. And as a person who had done Bible study fellowship for, I don't know, 13 years, and I was a leader for 11 years, um, I had studied God's word inside and outside, and I had served faithfully in not only parachurch ministry, but also church ministries. And um, I had done all the things that I thought I was supposed to do as a good Christian. I checked all the boxes. We went to church every Sunday. My kids went to Sunday school. They did BSF too. Um, and they did youth, uh, youth group things. And they also, we also did short-term mission trips. And uh, we tithed faithfully. We did all the things that we were supposed to do. And we grew in our faith and God taught us many things. Um, but then what happened was when things started happening with our daughter, like everything kind of started to crumble and fall apart. Like we had this crisis that happened and we, I, we came to a point where we were like, well, who, who are we if our kid isn't functioning the way 
Bible verses say she's supposed to function when we claim verses over her. Um, and so we started getting help. And at the same time, I went to seminary. And so in these different ways, God started pulling apart all the things that I had always held on so tightly to. So, and when God disrupts your systems, it's really unsettling, right? When the things that you've always held dear um, go slipping through your fingers, like, what do we do? How do we handle those, those crises of identity? If, this, if the way that I thought I was always supposed to be a Christian was to believe the Bible said X, Y, and Z, and if I did X, Y, and Z, that everything would happen in X, Y, and Z. And that meant that God loved me, right? It meant that I was chosen by God. And so I was no different than the Pharisees in um, the passage in Mark. Uh, they held on to their temple rituals and um, they did everything that they thought they were supposed to do. But at the end of the day, it wasn't what God was asking them to do. I think Jesus in this passage is saying, you know what? I'm giving you an opportunity for a do-over. For a do-over. And so everything you think that you have held dear to, guess what? None of it really matters. These are the things that really matter. And so for me and our, my family, what it looked like is, it looked like um, getting lots of help. We got counseling for our family, got counseling for our daughter. Um, we, we circled up our friends, people who loved us, to walk with us. They became um, Jesus to us because the thing that happens when crisis hits is uh, you don't feel like God's anywhere present anymore, right? Like if we've done all the things that God wanted us to do and things don't go our way, then surely God doesn't love us anymore. God isn't even present. This is the unspoken messages that we've gotten in our churches for the past 300 years. Um, ever since the evangelical spark uh, hit, the, hit the world stage and combined with this uh, industrial revolution that ignited um, a doctrine that had been spoken hundreds of years before that by John Calvin, which was this doctrine of assurance that basically said that if you um, don't believe that uh, you are one of God's chosen people, then that, that in and of itself means that you're probably not chosen. But if you work really hard at your calling, at your profession, if you work really hard, then a way to prove that you actually do believe that um, belong to God is that um, God will bless you with material things. And so you will have, I think the word is signs of divine benevolence, which is basically you get stuff. Um, so people started working really hard. These Christians were afraid that they didn't 
um, belonged to God because they had also been taught um, the doctrine of predestination, that only certain people are chosen by God and that God chose those people long ago in eternity and that he already knows who's in and who's out. And so if that's the environment you grow up in, then you live in fear. Because really, at the end of the day, we're not afraid that we can't, like, pay our bills or have a place to sleep. We're, we're not afraid of those things. I mean, we are. There's a thousand fears you can list. But at the end of the day, I think most people, deep in their hearts, they're afraid that um, God just actually doesn't love them. That God isn't even present or mindful of them. And so... I think in the church that we we have, whether they say it or not, these realities exist. This undercurrent of fear exists. And so what Christians have done for the past 300 years, combined with the Industrial Revolution and capitalism, is that we have worked really, really hard to try to prove that God loves us, that we are God's elect people. And that looks like material blessings. And so... I would even say in Christian circles, it looks like you have the perfect family. It looks like you have the perfect job and that life is going your way. Um, even within our churches, churches that are flourishing are the ones with large congregations and, and, and lots of programs. Um, those are the ones that we deem as being blessed by God, whereas smaller congregations are seen to be a dying, like maybe God's even left the building for them. Um, you know, I, I've sit, I've sit with friends who can't seem to pay their bills from week to week and they're busting their tails trying to put their life together for them and their, their children. And they're like, has God forsaken me? Because everywhere else I look, all the other Christians seem to have it all together. And so for me, I think that this is one of the biggest lies that we've been fed is that. In order to belong to God, we have to work really hard to prove that we belong to God. And um, I, think it's, I think it's been a disservice to the church. And I think because of it, it has left us just a hollow shell that um, we're just empty and we have no witness in the world, um, pockets of the world, I should say, because there's places where the church is booming. But here in America, you know, we don't look so good all the time. Because the things that we cling to are not the things that we're meant to cling to. And so I think in a way, in these uncertain times, um, God's not giving us a parable. He's giving us a circumstance. And he's asking us to, to get really quiet and still. I mean, he's had this, this little bitty virus has been transmitted on a global scale. And it's shutting down our economics and our political systems and it's shutting down our medical systems and it's even shutting down the places where people would gather and go to church. And, you know, we give lip service and say, oh, the church is in a building, the church is a people. But I would say that for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, we've been, the church is a building and it's so much a building that we keep building bigger buildings and we keep uh, functioning on bigger budgets and we keep um, professing how many baptisms we've had each year. And because of that, everyone, all they see us for is a building. The church is a building. And so now in social media realms, everyone's like, no, the church is a people. We're a people. We're a people. But guess what? 
when this is all said and done, if we go back to into our buildings, then guess what the world's going to see? We're actually not a people. We're a building. And that building has been used to prove that we are chosen by God. And so when we, when we profess to believe in something, to profess to believe in this Jesus who lived such a radically different way, and then we go and we buy into the lie that to be chosen by God, we have to look like X, Y, and Z, and we have to do X, Y, and Z, and that we're, then we're in some way promised X, Y, and Z, then um, we, we, we're nothing. Our witness is nothing. And so I think that in this time, um, God is inviting us into something else. And I think that because two years ago, uh, God called me out of the church that we had been um, attending for seven years. Um, I knew for a couple of years before we, I left that something wasn't right. There were aspects about how we were living out our faith, and it was not quite right. Something was very unsettled in me. But then when it came down to an issue about who was invited to the table and who was allowed to speak and who was allowed to preach, well, um, women weren't invited into those spaces. And so for me, that was a, a, a game changer when I knew God was calling me to, to do those things. And so, so I walked away. God led me out the doors and I knew that I wouldn't go back. And so for the past two years, I've had this crisis of identity. Who am I if I don't have my church? Who am I if I'm not doing my Bible study and, and going to my community groups? Who am I if the community that I've always professed to be part of, who said they were my family, aren't actually my family? And so I think that in this passage, Jesus is inviting us into something else. I think that in this crisis, Jesus is inviting us to something else. He's saying, no, these things that you've been holding dear, they're nothing. This is not the point of why I came. Jesus came for all of us. He didn't come just to try to pick and choose who belongs to what. Jesus came to give us all the love of God, to show us the love of God in a very sacrificial way. And that's what he's calling us to do here. He's calling us to love God and to love others as ourselves. But I would argue most people don't even love themselves. We just work really hard to try to make ourselves look good and to prove that maybe God loves us, but we actually don't love ourselves. And so the reality is, is that we can't do any of the things that we're being asked to do here in this command because we first and foremost have not received the love of God. And until we receive the love of God, until we get really quiet and we realize that we don't have to work to earn that love, that it is given to us by the abundance of God's grace, that um, and we don't have to continue to work to prove it, then I think that some then we will be able to start actually living out the this command that Jesus gives us in this passage. Because um, the reality is, is we can't give out what we haven't already been given. We just can't do it. But... The other thing is, is that, I mean, the only, the people who experience and rest in the abiding love of God, God, they're, they're the ones that um, are able to fully love God them, themselves and others. And so for years, we've had this fear-based uh, religious activity 
that has been confused with actually God's favor and love. And I think that with the shutdown of everything, God is shifting the, he's shifting the deck. Like Jesus is saying, no, this is no more. We're not doing this anymore. Um, it's, you get a do-over. You get a do-over. This is your chance. Um, he was giving that to the Pharisees in the passage before, and he's doing it for us now. He's disrupting us now in a way that's making us to think through and be like, who are we if we don't have all these things? And who are we if we don't know how we're going to pay our bills? And who are we if we um, don't connect in our churches? Are we still the church? And so how do, what does it look like to get really still and try to realize if we love God or not, or if God loves us? I, mean, I don't know. But for me, there's no other way to do it than to get quiet, to be silent, to stop the noise. Because until you do that, you'll never, you'll never hear the whisper of God ever in your life. And so if you go on the social medias and you listen to all the sermons, even if you listen to me, you're not going to, it's not going to be realized. But I think what God's doing is God is inviting us into something different. He's inviting us into something different. And it's not to hear all the great devotionals by all the pastors that feel like they need to fill the airspace. It's not to hop from church sermon to church sermon on all their Facebook pages. It's not to go from website to website trying to find just the right encouraging word to get you through the day. I think what God's inviting each and every single, each and every one of us into is an abiding relationship. And we can't do that, like just facilitated by everybody else. It's a, it's a very individual journey. And so God's putting us each in our places so that we can stop and slow down and figure out how do we receive the love of God so that we can eventually share the love of God. Because fear-driven religious activity should never be um, confused with actually loving others well. And so um, it's our invitation. Will we surrender and get really still and quiet and listen? Or are we just going to keep talking and striving and trying to prove our chosenness um, like the Pharisees of old and the generations of old have done these, these many years. I think, I think history is shifting. The tide, the tide is changing and God is wanting us to do something new. And so will we say yes or no? And I think, um, only time's going to tell. So will you pray with me, please? God, thank you. Thank you for this day. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your unconditional love that you extend to each one of us. Lord, there is no amount of work that we can do. There is no amount of material goods that will ever prove that. Lord, the only way that we will ever know is if we abide fully in you. You are inviting us into that relationship. You're inviting us to stop and listen and to receive the goodness of your love, Lord. May we be faithful to turn off the stuff, to quiet ourselves, to do our part, um, to care for others well during this time, but really to examine our hearts. Lord, help us examine our hearts so that the things that we say line up with the things that we do. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you that you're always with us. Amen.